Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and I'm joined on today's programme by Fran Hardiman. Fran is the lead chiropractor of the Being Well Clinic in South Malton, Devon. Fran, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you, Scott. I'm pleased to be here. Uh, thank you, Fran, for taking the time on such a lovely day, of course, to um, come on and speak with us. It's a real pleasure having you. Now, um, the purpose of this discussion is to establish your take on uh, leadership, of course. So if we dive straight into that and look at that word leader in isolation, how would you define that? What does the word leader actually mean to you? Well, I've, I believe that a leader is someone who's willing to take action and responsibility, and responsibility in a way that um, it's about being able to respond to a situation rather than a sense of duty, although that can be part of it. So it's a very ethical position to take, is um, to be congruent, to be forward-thinking, to be able to pick up the pieces when it all goes a bit wrong, and carry on with paddling one's canoe. I think those are all very good points, Sir Fran. I think sometimes when we think of leadership, um, the responsibility side of it and the need to be flexible and to be able to respond to certain issues um, is sometimes um, overlooked in a way uh, because often we associate um, leadership with sort of a sort of glorification, I guess. We associate it with being involved with uh, politics, for example, or being involved with celebrity, fame, sports personalities, those sorts of things. And sometimes I think we fail to recognise the real responsibilities of leadership, particularly when it comes to the business world don't we? I would agree. I think that um, being a leader is much more subtle than having the title leader, CEO, manager, whatever it may be. Mm. I can certainly see uh, the merit in uh, what you're saying uh, there for sure. And do you think those people who maybe don't have those titles, but still within businesses in their own right, display leadership qualities, they act as mentors, uh, for example, do you think that they maybe get the recognition that they deserve? No, they certainly don't. And um, the really successful business people and who turn to mentoring and give their time often for you know very little financial return um, is grossly overlooked and undervalued. I'm in a mentorship program and um, the lady I'm in mentorship with has changed my business in two years. And it's been worth all the time and effort to do that. Um, even though I've been doing this a long time, I've found new, new ways and new ways to think. Mm. And so that that person has certainly been an influencer um, on yourself um, in that case, uh, Fran. But have there been any other people that have maybe stood out as people who have influenced you or maybe been um, an inspiration to you as you've developed through your career? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I retrained as a chiropractor when I was in my 40s. I qualified, well, late 30s, early 40s. I qualified when I was 42. And I was lucky enough to um, be in the college training when Dr. Christina Cundiff became principal there. And I worked very closely with her for about 12 years um, on chiropractic politics and association matters. And uh, yes, she was a truly inspiring, still is a truly inspiring lady. And if we think about how that experience of working with these people has moulded your own leadership style. How would you describe your way of leading now? I'm a very collective leader. I know where I want to go. 
Um, but I'm willing to look at all the journey options um, so that I take my crew with me rather than having anyone trying to paddle my canoe backwards or in circles. I think that's very important, being able to take people with you and have people buy into the uh, the collective vision. That's incredibly um, important there. And there are many ways that you can go about uh, doing that, of course. One is, of course, showing as a leader consideration and concern for the interest of those around you. Um, looking out for um, your employees, it's very easy, of course, to uh, get them on side. And I think in light of the current COVID-19 situation, it will be leaders who are investing time in the people around them who will be really ripping the benefits because it will be those people that are willing to go above and beyond to keep things ticking over, won't it? Oh, I certainly agree. I mean, I don't employ very many people, but my team are furloughed. And every time um, there's an announcement about some change to uh, the various regimes, they're texting me that evening, Fran, Fran, can we come back to work, please? Please, please. <laughs> but I think it also goes to the, the, the quality of leadership also extends to, to one's customers. Hmm. And customer loyalty and brand loyalty is built on the way that the business and the people who run that business, the vision that they have, um, of service and quality, and that's why we are um, easily, you know, once we're educated to what a brand stands for, people are incredibly loyal. Um, and I've certainly found that since I've come back to work, um, having had time off over the COVID time, um, that my customer base is is not diminished at all. Um, there are people who are waiting to come and see me because they don't feel safe to come out yet, but everybody will be back. You know, I have every every confidence in that. Mm, and of course, during this time, um, with regards to employees, certainly you will have had to uh, provide inevitably some reassurance um, that everything is going to be um, all right going forward. Just make sure that they're aware of what's going to come up in the future. And that puts a lot of pressure on leaders, um, especially when there's not a great deal of certainty as to what the future does really hold in the uh, the long term, even though we do know deep down that everything will eventually revert in s- to some degree. Um, has that been quite difficult, um, do you think, um, being able to keep the communication channels open and provide that reassurance even when information is in short supply? It has, mainly because obviously when the country went into lockdown, um, the situation for a lot of businesses, but particularly those in the health sector, was not clear as to whether or not we could or should remain open. Um, There was a lot of social pressure for every part of the the country to close, and certainly in small communities here. Um, And it took a while for um, each of us and each of our organisations to work out what people what we can and can't do. So for my employees, um, and certainly for myself, the first five weeks were very, very scary. Um, I didn't know if I would qualify for any of the help from the government, and I didn't know how long I had to make the cash reserves that I had last for. Um, And in fact, just before the end of the five weeks that I was off, I was making inquiries at the food bank because I didn't know where we were going to get the money to buy the shopping next week. It's awful, of course, what uncertainty such as this can really cause. And I think it highlights the importance of clarity and transparency from a leadership point of view, all of this, uh, doesn't it? And there's been a fierce debate about um, how that's, um, of course, um, been shown by the uh, the government, um, of course, um, especially even with the uh, the new COVID secure guidelines that have recently um, emerged for the benefit of the listeners. We are recording this on the 27th of May 2020. And so yeah. there is a roadmap for businesses to begin reopening 
under the premise that they are COVID secure. But again, nobody's really entirely sure what that exactly means at the moment. And there's still a lot of blurred lines around um, safety regulations, isn't there? There is. And, you know, equally very confusing. One can look at a paper and um, there can be two or three articles on a page, um, all contradicting each other. Is two metres enough distance? Is it too too close, too far? Should we have bothered with lockdown? You know, these are all legitimate questions, but it is very confusing for the man and woman in the street to know what to do that's best for them and their, their family and friends. Mm, I um, think, and certainly, mm. certainly in a business, you know, we only have one door to come in and out of, so I can only see one person on the premises at a time. It limits what I'm able to do in terms of volume. Um, and if that's going to continue for a long time, it's going to have a quite a difficult impact. And I know, you know quite a number of chiropractors like myself are very small, one one or two person businesses. There's not a lot of wiggle room. Mm, there really isn't for sure. And if we do think about what the future might really hold um, in the uh, the long term, Fran, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme uh, today, um, do you give me an idea of what you envision the next year will hold for yourself and for the Beingwell Clinic and also what you hope to achieve, not just in getting through this current difficult situation with COVID-19, but also for beyond the pandemic as well? Well, for myself, I'm I'm certain that um, I'm clear that my business will survive and, and flourish. Um, there is a demand for my services. I just have to keep on top of the um, health and safety side of things and making sure that my uh, costs don't run away with myself. Um, I won't be looking to expand the business. I should be looking to stand my ground, if you like, um, because if the opportunity to expand comes along, I might take it, but obviously um, it's been a bit of a knock and I would with the COVID situation. And I don't have any idea if we go into lockdown again, whether the same support from the government would be available. So I need to make plans for that now. Exactly right. And there's still a great deal of uncertainty, even though there is now a roadmap out of this uh, lockdown, supposedly. And hopefully we do start to see an emergence from this situation and an upward trajectory sooner rather than later. And um, what I do yeah. think, Fran, actually, is when we do start to see things really change, it would actually be really beneficial from the listener's point of view to perhaps have you uh, back on the programme with us just to catch up on how things are doing. Because I have to say, it's been a very informative uh, discussion today. Well, thank you. I'd be delighted to come back and see see how things, uh, you know, tell everyone how things have gone. Um, you know, I, I count my blessings. I, you know, the, the, the Chancellor's programme has really helped me out. It was scary because I didn't know how long I had to make my budget last for. But um, the speed and efficiency that he's been able to put in, the, the rates relief grants, um, the bounce back loans, fantastic. That took 10 minutes to apply for and the money was in my account in no time at all. Amazing. I've never had it so easy to borrow money. And that's that's great to hear as well. And it's testament to uh, the good things that the uh, the government has um, certainly done during yeah. this time, for sure. Praise, praise where it's due. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, even where there is a criticism, there must be praise for the year uh, for the good things for sure. Um, I've got to say, Fran, it's been a real pleasure having you on the uh, the programme uh, today for sure. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to uh, join us. Do take care and do stay safe as well with everything still going on in the meantime. 
And yourself, Scott. Thanks for your time and effort today. Good luck. That was Fran Hardiman, the lead chiropractor of the Being Well Clinic in Devon. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save 
the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce, and I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more 
seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear right. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top, and that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice, uh, the health secretary often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. 
So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm-hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up 
uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. 
I think he's handled it very well. Understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently, let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's 
major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, Do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, thank you for coming on the the program. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.